On a global scale, the Australian music industry certainly punches above our weight. We have a small population and geographically isolated from the rest of the world. However, somehow, for decades, even before the internet, we have consistently been an industry which has exported the biggest stars in the world again and again. Think Kylie Minogue, In Excess, Five Seconds of Summer, Sia, Tammy Parla, Troye Sivan, Flume, the list goes on. One of the managers at the forefront of the next wave of Australian superstars is Regan Lethbridge, co-founder of Lemon Tree Music, who manages Tones and I, Tash Sultana, Pierce Brothers and more. Simply put, Regan seems to have a knack of finding talented buskers on the streets of Australia and turning them into millionaires. What he has achieved with his co-founder David Morgan is nothing short of remarkable. Together, they have turned a humble, independent music management business into a global powerhouse. How has he done it? I'm Luke Gerges, and we will be unpacking this with Regan on this episode of Fear at the Top. Regan, welcome. Hey, Luke. Thanks so much. That was a, a very, very kind intro. Well, it's all true. And look, we're, we're on recording this on the 11th of May. I think this is the first day Rolling Stone magazine hits the, uh, hits the shelves. It's the first ever issue. I got it here. Do you, have you got your copies yet? Has it been delivered? No, I'm still waiting in, I'm, I'm mine in the mail. I'm going to run down to the store today and just try and buy one. Hopefully Mate, there's one there. I'm you're getting excited. a lot in the mail. But anyway, we got, it's it's pretty exciting. She looks, this is the best I've ever seen her look. It's freaking great. It's, it's, it's amazing. Incredible. Julia nailed that shoot. Yeah, Tones has got hers. I know that, which yeah. is just amazing. Oh, that's awesome. So I'm going to play um, a bit of a a bit of a cut of when Nova interviewed Tones and spoke about how she feels about it. And then I'd love to get your thoughts on on. Not only this cover, but where Tones' career is at right now. I am so stoked that Rolling Stone Australia is back. And we just want to say on behalf of the Fitzy and Whipper show, great front cover. That must have been a big honour for you, Tones. Yeah, that's huge. I actually got the first um, magazine um, the oh. other day. so um, What are you doing with it? Are you framing it? Or what are you going to do? Well, I, I said to them, can they can they send me a blown up picture of the front cover on a canvas? So they sent me that, which is my, like, I'm, I put it on the wall. Yeah. But um, they've sent me, a, um, you know, a, a, a magazine and, you know, that's, that's going to be something that I'll keep forever and, and look back at that. And to be on the first one back is, yeah, it's you know, it's always, you always feel like it's not going to be me, obviously, you know, but, you know, why not? So, Regan, they say when you have success with an artist the first time, it's luck. But if you can do it twice, you're actually good at your job. So not only have you done it twice, the second time around with Tones and I, you've absolutely shattered records. So Tones' Dance Monkey, I think, is the most streamed song by a female artist globally. Is that correct? Uh, It is, yeah. On Spotify, it's the most um, streamed um, song by a female. And I think it's seventh on the all-time list. It's had seven billion streams across all platforms, which is just... It's just absolutely insane. Billion with a B. So what do you put your success down to? Um, having an incredible team, first and foremost. Um, we're nothing without a team. Like everything we've done from uh, the early days to, to, to literally to today, we, we're, we're just incredibly focused on building great teams around uh, our artists, um, whether they're co-managers or agents or great labels or, you know, just generally good people. And, when you've got everyone kind of swimming in that same direction, it can be it can be um, just incredibly powerful. It can be unstoppable, especially when you get um, brilliant artists, you know, uh, writing insane tunes that kind of resonate with the world. It's um, that's the key to it all. It's not one person. It's not 
one thing. It's not luck. It's just it's just a mixture of a bunch of stuff. It's just all the elements kind of combining. So you mentioned the team, and you know, I think both Tones and Tasha with Sony. Is that correct? Yeah. So Tasha's distro and Sony here, and then a license for the world, but independent on Mum and Pop in America. And Tones is a Sony distro for Australia, New Zealand, and on a license with Electra for the world. Both have got their own labels licensed through those respective labels. So obviously controlling your own masters uh, from day one on both, uh, why did you do it that way? Why not on a standard record deal and really cash in on huge advances and things like that, which you, which you could do with these artists? Yeah, I mean, just from the, from the outset, we're very passionate. Um, Dave, my business partner, and I have always been very passionate about wanting our artists to have as much creative control as possible. It's obviously incredibly important and to own their work, uh, own their masters and um, just have that sense of control and ownership is everything. And uh, a lot of the artists that we have worked with are obviously former buskers. Um, so in that respect, it it's just makes sense. And, and we've always, we've never looked at the, the short term. We've always thought, um, you know, you could take crazy money up front and all that sort of stuff, but it's very short-sighted. We've always looked, you know, three to five years down the track um we'd prefer to go for kind of better splits and ownership of work rather than huge upfront payments and um uh and 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 that sort of stuff it's a personal preference of how we like to do things and and it works so we've never kind of um detoured from that do you feel like you were able to do that because the artist had such success such so quickly and if they hadn't had that, you might have had to look for a record deal? Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing. There's no one size fits all. I mean, that's the beauty of music and that's the beauty of, of the gig that we're in. It's, it's, it's purely what was right for Tash at the time. I think it was at the start of 2016. Um, and it took, I think, something like nine months to, to do those deals. And we didn't rush it. And it's, it was quite, quite a complex process. But at the end of the day, we wanted the best result for our client and um, I'm confident we got that. So you just get that forever income and, and really great splits and obviously the ownership and, and you know, shared a viral video on Facebook. It started there and obviously with the busking background, whereas, whereas Tones um, was, this, we, we, you know, through the Unearth and through Triple J and we, um, it just kind of exploded a lot quicker. Um, and obviously you get more leverage the, the bigger your artist is um, and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, the principle remains the same. You want what's best for them. But you've also got to, be respectful of the fact that the people that you're working with and the partners that you that you're um, going into business with, I mean, to give them some kind of skin in the game gets them more invested. You get more of their time, um, but the key is getting them emotionally invested. And once they can see who the artist is and and get to know them and all that sort of stuff, that's when you get that extra ten percent, and that's when things can just go crazy when the whole engine room's engaged. And how do you get a label like Sony who have, you know, quite a big roster and quite a big team, how do you get them as a manager emotionally invested? Well, I mean, it's just, it's not hard when you've got good people that you work with. I mean, all of the people that we work with, all of our amazing artists that we have the honour of working with, um, they're all good people, they're good human beings. So obviously it's just a lot of early meetings and, and just forming those relationships and, and Dennis Hammond and the team at Sony in my opinion, you've got the best label here um, by a country mile and they do incredible things with a bunch of different acts and we're very fortunate to have a great relationship uh, and with Marit and Paul and just, just with everyone there. So it's more about just getting them along early. You know, we, we pride ourselves on setup so that can happen, you know, 12 months before a deal's done. You start planting seeds of where you see uh, the artist potentially signing and you cast the net pretty wide and you can soon see when people jump um, and 
it kind of takes shape very early. It's hard to explain. A setup can take anywhere from six to 18 months, basically, until you're 100% happy and you've got that right global team. But it's something that we've never rushed and we're super proud of all the setups with our artists and uh, it's feeling good. There's a lot of work to do, but it's feeling good. How do you seed artists throughout the industry? Is it simply sending some tracks to some people around the world and seeing who bites or, or what's your strategy on that? Um, it's a bit of both. Obviously, you get uh, inquiries, you field inquiries, you do early calls, you do late calls, depending on time zones. That That's the brutal part for the first year or so. And your global network that, that you know, that lemon tree has built over the last seven or eight years or so that, um, you know, you work with people that you trust and that you like and that you know that can move the needle in respective markets. We've got a, a guy in uh, Europe called Dave Toothius at Plug and Play who we do uh, a lot of our stuff through and he's just brilliant at being on ground and, um, you know, really helping uh, break the Germanys and the Netherlands and the, uh, of the world. It's, it's essential, I think, and obviously Jadon with Tash in North America and uh, Jackson with Tones and all that sort of stuff. So there's just – it's all about the team and it's all about um, making sure that they've – just on it super early, I guess. It's, it's hard to explain, but it, it, it takes time and um, it's one that it's just forever a work in progress. There's no perfect formula and if there was, I mean, everyone would be doing it. But it's, um, yeah. I find it curious um, and also inspired that you decided to use Jad and Comerford as the North American manage, co-manager because he's an Australian manager um, and the... I guess the default position is if you want to get a co-manager for North America, you find a manager in North America. Why did you choose to partner with Jadon in that way? At the time, he was living in North America from memory. When we started texting, he was spending a lot of time there anyway. And obviously, the success he had with Vance Joy in North America was was amazing. And um, I think I played like a unified golf day or something and just met him and just got a nice vibe. So I just sent him a text and... Uh, I asked him for advice on something when things were going crazy and it just made a lot of sense and obviously we chatted to Dave and, 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 and put the question to him. But again, it was one of those very natural, organic things that wasn't forced and it just felt like the right move. And, you know, I don't, it, you know, still to this day, we, we've never had a bad word. It just feels good and it feels like everyone's got the same kind of vision and um, he knows a lot of people over there. I mean, I remember being backstage at Coachella with him and, it was, it was ridiculous, you know what I mean? So it's just having that that connection base and that foundation and um, he spends a lot of time there. Obviously, we've been on a bunch of planes over the last few years as well. So, again, there's no right or wrong. It's just what's worked for us. But, yeah, making ha- having those relationships with people on ground is definitely very beneficial because you can't get to every single meeting and all that sort of stuff. Although, uh, with everything that's going on with the pandemic, I think after w- what's happening now, there'll be a lot more Zooming and, and Hangouts and all that sort of stuff uh, for sure. It's the ultimate leveler, I think, for Australian managers because um, previously you were in a you're a competitive advantage if you were at the pub, at the people's offices, just with all the people in the industry in the states and the UK. Uh, but now it doesn't matter if you're one meter away for or you know ten meters away from somebody down the road or whatever, or you're in Australia, you literally have the same opportunity to communicate and build a relationship as anyone. Um, so I, I think it's a bit of a competitive advantage this COVID thing globally for us as Australian managers. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I live you know half an hour north of Byron. I've been here for four years. You know, it's like even though the heartbeat of the industry is in Sydney, you know, you just got to you go there a fair bit and. We just live on the phone and live on these hangouts. And that's always been the way for us. That's that's been the way since the get-go. So, you know, being there in person is obviously incredibly important, but 
the real planning and all that sort of stuff starts for us about 18 months before the gig actually happens or, you know, minimum a couple of years before a release, like an album or something comes out. So we're all, it's all about planning and playing the long game and, um, and not rushing stuff, which it took us so long to learn. And I, I'm still impatient. I still want to rush, but I'm um, trying to be proactive, not reactive and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, it seems to work and it doesn't matter where we've obviously got an office in Melbourne and we've got an office up here. Um, but we've never felt like we needed to move to LA and buy a suit and run around and do meetings. It's just not what we're about as a company and, and not how we want to support our artists in that way. How often are you in LA in the UK? Last year, I think it was maybe four times. Um, a lot. Yeah. I've, I've done an annual trip to UK Europe with Tash for the last five years or so. Last year, there's a lot of running around with tones um, all over the world. So it just varies. It depends on if you're setting up a release, if you're looking to do deals or just to be there to support your artists. But they've got a big promo look like we were in New York, Jackson, Dave and I recently for the Fallon stuff that Tones did and obviously her theatre run in Europe before uh, it all got pulled. So it's that I, I personally find it quite hard to work on the road because you're always travelling, you're always jet lagged and we've got a very set way of doing things with scheduled calls and uh, with living on the phone when you're on a tour bus or when you're, you know, you've got to be at a gig or whatever, it's, it, it is quite difficult. So, um, but you just make it all work. You find a way to make it work and, you know, it's that old, Added, there's a solution for everything and that's kind of what we stick by and go off. A lot of times when managers have their artists blow up overseas, they do look to get a co-manager in North America or the UK. Um, however, the underlying anxiety that Australian managers have, particularly younger ones, newer ones, are that we'll engage a big manager overseas and one of two things might happen. They'll just ignore us and we won't get anything done and we've just signed the management over and it's a pain in the ass. Or two... Things go really well and then we get boxed out of the deal and we're no longer managing this band anymore because this bigger manager's kind of kicked us out. Um, do you share any of those anxieties? Do you have a view on how that sort of connection should be done? Do you feel like it's necessary? Um, I guess it's all depending on where you're at with your personal level of experience. Like if you feel like you're fairly well-versed and breaking an act or you're confident enough to handle it by yourself. Cause that's the great thing about a co-management scenario is there's two of you or three of you or four of you. And when, when there's that kind of scenario, you can share the load a bit in terms of mainly the travel because the travel can be brutal, especially if you've got young kids and, and you're missing home and all that sort of stuff. But just, I mean, the strengths and weaknesses scenarios is one that I always use. Like Dave's really good at stuff that I'm terrible at and, and vice versa. So, what are those things? What is Dave good at that you're not, and vice versa? It's just, I mean, a lot of the tech stuff, all the rollout stuff, like just a lot of the admin stuff. Um, just basically, yeah, he just, he just, he's got a nous for the things that I don't know. It's just a natural fit, and it's kind of we've kind of naturally established who does what. Um, where I do more of the deal setup and the structure and a lot of the strategy, and I still do the plugging to the Jays, and and it's more of a relationships thing. Um, but that's just us. I mean, if you can find that person uh, in someone else that can have that value add uh, that we've been fortunate enough to find with the Dave T's and the Jaddens and the Jacksons, um, then that's an absolute no-brainer to dive in and sacrifice some of your commission for that because at the end of the day, you're working for your client, and that's what's better for your client. And, and I don't agree with the attitude of it's you've got to just not do co-management because you're going to lose some of 
whatever your percentages or all that sort of stuff. It's more about what is best for your client, what is the value add that you can bring to the table, and are you adding value every day? And that's what we try and do, uh, not just with fielding inquiries and, and filtering stuff, but also creating that opportunity. And if you've got someone that can help you do that when you're asleep in Australia and there in Europe or UK or America, then absolutely you should you should do it. But it's got to be the right fit and you've got to build that trust and you've really got to, um, it's got to feel right. It's something you definitely shouldn't rush into. What are your deals like with your artists? So a typical management deal is 20% of all income uh, and then there's a fixed term for X amount of years and there's a post-term clause. Do you, how are your deals normally structured? Do you, look for in perpetuity post-term rights do you also have any master equity like is there anything different in your deals that give you and your business more security there's nothing like that no we've we, we always from the outset try and go for five years because we're big believers of it takes a year or two to really set things up and get rolling uh and then once you're on, on a roll for those for that another year or two then you don't want to give that away to anyone else but that's not uh, the, the end of the world. We've got no master equity and we've got no uh, like nothing like that for the sunset clauses or anything like that. They're pretty stock standard in that regard and we just, we hedge our bets on the fact that if we do a really good job and we and we, and we do what we say what we're going to do, um, that the artist will stick around and um, so far so good in that respect. But um, yeah, for a master, it is pretty stock standard and we don't try and sell a dream either. We just you know, really try and bring their vision to life instead of saying, this is what you should do. It's more like, what do you want to do? And then it's our job to make that happen. It's, it's, it's not a matter of us coming in and saying, this is what you have to do. And no, you can't do that. It's like, we advise that you do this. You need to meet this person or, we, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But um, it's all about, that's their career at the end of the day. And you're amplifying it and you're connecting the dots in the right way that doesn't, one, hinder their career or you need to keep them in brand if they're a Triple J thing or, if it's a big pop commercial thing, then that's a, that's a, that's a whole other kettle of fish. So I don't know. We need more time. But basically, there's just there's just no one-size-fits-all kind of thing in music. And that's the beauty of it. And that's that's the sort of stuff we love because there's no rule book that's out the window. And the more we can swim against the current or um, turn left when everyone else turns right, I used to always say that um, it just feels good. Like if, if everyone's doing the same thing, do something else. Do you feel like there's inherent risk uh, in your business if you don't push for those sort of equity in the masters or uh, longer post-term clauses? There's a massive um, movement at the moment for post-term clauses being in perpetuity. For those who don't know, uh, post-term clauses are if an artist leaves a management business, the manager could continue to earn from all the work that they've done. You know, if it's a five-year deal they can continue to get paid from all the records released within those five years for however long the post-term clause is. Generally speaking, they've been in the last so decade, I'd say they've been anywhere between three to five years. But now managers are now pushing for in perpetuity, which means they're getting post-term revenue for the rest of their lives. Um, and the argument for that is that the managers did all the work, the artists will continue to get paid for the rest of their lives. Uh, the managers also need some long-term protection on their income as well and have an asset and be they're, they're as involved in the business as the artist. So therefore, they should be as looked after long-term, even if the artist leaves the manager for, you know, maybe the grass is greener or maybe they think the grass is greener or they just had a bad day or whatever. Um, and so it gives those managers a lot more security because at the end of the day, um, you know, the manager is the most important person in the artist's team they're often the punching bag when things go wrong and when the things go right, it's 
it's it's rarely the manager that gets all the credit. So that's why there's this big, you know, post-term movement. Um, and I think you see a lot of managers going, right, I'm not going to sign your management unless I can also sign your master. So I have some protection and I'm just not putting my whole life at risk, you know, for potentially you sticking around on, on your word. I mean, what's your view on that? Um, I definitely understand it and respect it. Um, it's just not our personal view of how we've done things. We traditionally have always done relatively short-term deals for our artists in terms of labels and publishing, all that sort of stuff, as I said earlier, with full ownership. So, um, I mean, I, I can see why people do that. I, I understand for a manager of 10 or 20 years' experience is breaking something from absolute scratch, um, you know, and they, they, they've got a huge hand in that. Like, I, I absolutely um see that see see why they would do that but we personally um don't agree with it and don't do it and um yeah again like back in the day managers it used it, labels used to have a lot more power and now managers and the artists have got a lot lot of the power so and that and in turn what comes with that is work with so um it's the a to z that managers do now and it is a 24 7 gig and um, so I certainly see the side of what you're saying and where people are coming from for that. We just don't do it in our, in, under our roof. So then what's your retirement plan or exit strategy or what is, you know, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, 20 years from now, whatever it is for you, you know, when you have dreams of retiring, um, what is that plan? I guess stepping back in some way, like still being involved uh, in bigger picture stuff and ideally still, you know, working with artists um, and working with, people that you helped in the early days. And I, and I, and I realise that things come to a natural end and for whatever reason, uh, people people go their, their own ways. But, um, yeah, hopefully lots of golf and surfing and um, we would have done well enough while we're actually managing those artists to, to warrant uh, whatever it is or whenever it is we retire. But, I mean, personally, I, I like the idea of always having my toes in the water in some degree, whether it's sitting on a board or being director of something or I, I don't know I, I don't know what I'd do if I had nothing to do I'm just I'm obsessive compulsive and I just have to do something so um, the day that I stop doing that I'll probably be dead to be honest but um, it's a good question and I don't know I just turned 36 I'm going grey already but yeah I probably need to start thinking about that sort of stuff more but I definitely I'm not interested in signing artists masters, masters or uh, having in perpetuity um, clauses and contracts for sure. So but no, no again, aspiration, no aspiration at all of starting a record company. We've got a JV label with Sony where we um, uh, just find the talent and sign it, and then uh, Sony um, pays for recording and marketing and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, our focus from day one has always been management. My passion is management. Um, it's what we're reasonably good at, and. I don't want to cast the net so wide that we're doing a million things and then we're pretty shit at all of them. I really want to focus on, you know, artist development, uh, global management and breaking artists, like on a serious level. Like we, we take it super serious. Like we realise that it's been their dream since they were a kid and we realise, you know, how hard they've worked to get there, I guess, like with all the busking or with all the songwriting in their room. Like it's not something that we take for granted and, and, and we take it incredibly seriously. So, um yeah, there's there's more things that we want to do for sure. There's more companies that we'd like to start, but we're, again, we're not rushing into that. We didn't even get our first staff member, I don't think, for the first two or three years, and we're still a relatively small company with with seven staff. So we're just trying to build it slowly. We're not interested in having endless amounts of staff or apps. We just want a, a really refined roster, 
and a small you know team that we that we trust and that we love and um, that's just how we operate and how we do things and Dave and I personally still take on a lot of work not it's not the old school style of sign it and then handle everything and, and we've got a great setup with our day managers and all that sort of stuff who do an incredible job so um, again it's just an each to their own thing man I think you mentioned that you took two years to hire your first staff member and that's always a quite a critical moment as any management business starts to grow it's always a nervous one usually not always but a lot of times it's nervous in that shit like what if i hire this person and there's six months we run out of money and the act doesn't take off and all of this like was that did you go through the same thing or did you have enough burn rate no, you no, know, no. To, to know that you're good no no no. yeah of course man i mean yeah i we were on baked beans for like the first i think three winters of lemon tree like I'm, and i'm serious <laughs> i'm deadly serious like we we're pulling out the minimal and we were just getting by, but because of our busking background, because we played professionally for 10 years or so because of that background, we, I think at one point we were paying ourselves like $50 each a week back in the band days. So we learned how to live off nothing. And um, when it was time to invest in that first staffer, uh, it was an incredibly important time, but yeah, I was nervous all the time. And, and every time winter rolled around, I'd shit myself because you know, you want to do right by your artists and, and invest everything you have and all the time that you have, but at the same time, you know, like it's your, it is your time uh, and your, you know, th- those commissions to keep the lights on. And and so, yeah, it was a very scary time. It's still a scary time. Like, I mean, with with what's happening around the world right now, I mean, everyone's in the same boat and there's certainly a lot more people worse off than me. I mean, I'd hate to be in lockdown in India, for example, but, you know, we had millions and millions of live dates just scrapped in two to three days it was just it was a huge shock and you know to our to our artists and um i don't know you just got to find a way to get through it and make sure that everyone's all right and 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 looking after your staff i read this richard bradson quote i don't know where i was but it's always stuck with me look after the staff and they'll look after you and all that sort of stuff and 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 that's just been a huge thing for us just making sure that everyone's okay our artists our staff and uh, just trying to keep everything afloat, you know, and and staying within the means of what you started out to do, which was to be a great management company and try and change the dial and move the needle for your acts. Has anyone at Lemon Tree taken pay reductions or been stood down or reduced hours because of the whole COVID scenario? Nothing like that. No, we when it first happened, we just sent an email to everybody and just said, just wanted to reassure everybody that everyone's job's safe and we'll get through this as a unit essentially. And as things went on, we decided to drop the Friday for our staff um, without not, not a pay cut or anything, just purely take the Friday to be with your family or do, do what it is you need to do and make the most of just having a really big Monday to Thursday. But if your client reaches out to you direct, you've got to do whatever needs to be done. But it's basically like a longer weekend while we're so grounded from touring and stuff because that's what our business is built on. Um, but yeah, no redundancies, no staff cuts, no wages cuts, no nothing like that. So your staff are now working four days a week, but being paid for five. Yeah, amazing. And do you have the confidence yeah. to do that because you've got, you've had uh, such prosperity in the past, and so it's going to give you that burn over the next say year and a half or whatever. Or um, are you feeling like it's going to come back quicker than than maybe others think? Um, I guess it's just first and foremost looking after your staff and looking after their mental health and wellbeing because they're stuck at home. We don't have that office vibe. Um, it's just uncertain times. So it's just a tiny little thing that we thought we could do to help basically. Um, and, yeah, 
Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. I've got no idea what's going on. I know that uh, this summer there'll be, be potentially a lot more Aussie uh, lineups at festivals, which is going to be a great thing. But in terms of Europe and America, yeah, we've got no idea. I mean, we've basically cleared the idea of any of our acts going overseas this year. And, yeah, when it's ready to roll next year and it's safe to do so, we'll be there. You know, we, we, we'd love to. But we don't want to be guinea pigs at the same time. And obviously we, we want our artists and clients to, to, to be safe. So I think everyone's just kind of, you know, in the same boat and just and just waiting to see what happens. But we, we've just got all of our artists recording and writing as much as possible and just assisting in that way as much as possible. And that's why we've had so many releases lately. It's not a coincidence. You know, everyone's, everyone's stuck at home just... Um, just creating and doing what they're doing. So that's the, that's a silver lining in all this craziness, I guess. Have you done any forecasting or guesstimates on if the revenue lost from international touring will be made up by the extra demand you'll have for your talent who are likely to be festival headliners if people can only choose from Australian artists? If you're, if the demand for your Australian roster and your Australian and the Australian festivals goes up, um, I know the numbers in terms of what was live lost overseas for our clients. Yeah, I obviously can't go into details, but uh, it was, as I said, it was in the millions. It was incredibly significant, and there's no way we can get that back. Uh, we've moved. We're essentially moving the windows from this year to next year, and yeah, if we're lucky, we might get a little bit back for the summer. Um, uh, for a couple of our acts who are headliners and then hopefully a bunch of uh, the other acts with the All-Australian lineups. But I think what's going to happen there is, it sounds rosy, but I think ticket prices um, when the headlines and stuff start up are going to be a lot cheaper. I don't know if you're sitting in a theatre, if it's going to be every second or every third seat that they can sell, there's going to be a lot of parameters kind of put in place that um, I think revenue, regardless of how you look at it, is going to be drastically cut. So there's been a huge focus on uh, releasing and momentum and, um, you know, getting our streams up as much as possible. Because as I said, live is our bread and butter. It's what we've built our business on. It's what we know how to do well with our apps globally. And that in turn shows that you are a real artist. Uh, you're around for a while and you're not kind of a flash in the pan. So, and that's, again, why we would like working with buskers because they love working so hard. They love um, playing music and they love putting in that extra mile and we just take that formula and plug it into a global network and put a good plan around it. But a lot of our artists, Tones especially, you know, all the vision for creative is all her. Um, it's all in her mind, her marketing, all that sort of stuff. And, and in that respect, she's a genius. And it's our job to amplify that and join the dots with the team and not muck around with that too much. Whereas other artists need a bit more of a hand with that, you know. So um, I guess to answer your question, uh, yeah, we've done some forecasting, but... I don't think we're ever going to make out what we lost for sure. But as I said at the start, everyone's in the same boat and I'm never going to whinge about this. Like there's a lot more people far worse off. Um, but the live industry especially has been decimated. The business that we've got with Jadon and Tash, uh, Lonelands Agency, that's just, that was flying. And now there's barely a heartbeat that's flatlined and we'll just bite our time and then circle back next year and, and come back and make it our best year ever so we can make up for this year, hopefully. You mentioned the uh, booking agency that you started with, Tash and Jadon. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that business? Yeah, so it's called Lonely Lanes Agency, so LLA, uh, and the idea came about from Tash um, early last year. Um, well, it was actually a couple of years ago. She's always just mentioned she wanted to do her own thing and and um, wanted to do it with me. And we um, uh, basically wanted a bit of business now behind it. And 
Um, and we asked Jadon to get involved as well to really help with that kind of thing with, the, with, with in terms of the setup. And uh, we launched with a we're a very small roster. Um, and uh, Harry Moore, who's one of the great young agents of Australia, um, fortunately agreed to come on board, and he looks after incredible acts like Oceanelli and Clues and um, obviously Pierce Brothers and all that sort of stuff. So we started off and running, and Tones and I obviously. Uh, and obviously Tash is on the books who I still book. So we started with a very small but kind of powerful roster. Um, and then uh, Ziggy Alberts came on board. We had a meeting with him. He, he's an incredible talent and just finished like a tour that did 48,000 tickets. So um, it's been a very short period of time, but we're incredibly proud of what we've done. But, yeah, we were flying and, and we were very, very excited. So now it's about kind of stepping back and going, well, this is a, it is what it is right now. How can we plan for 2021 and come back even stronger? That's that's kind of our mentality. But um, and and before that, I worked at an agent at, at one two three agency for six years or so, um, uh, and that was great and learned a lot. And but it was just time to do my own thing, basically. So I respectfully put a notice and and uh, and moved on. It's such an amazing. Uh agency that sort of come together what seems to be overnight like a bunch of very talented music industry professionals with one of the biggest Australian artists uh, pull together a very high impactful roster like you said and now have a very formidable agency almost overnight not a slow build it just happened were you guys worried about alienating other agencies in the market because now you've created a competitor. Uh, a lot of these agencies also own festivals. Was was that ever in consideration? That's a good question. Um, it was definitely in consideration. It's definitely, you know, enters the thought process. But at the end of the day, if if artists want to want to get together, or if um, if it feels right for change, no matter what industry you're in, and you you got to follow your gut and follow your heart and um, I still remember the early conversations with Tash and it just didn't feel right. So it was either you stay in that, like staying in an unhappy marriage or you move on. It's like we really felt strongly that it was time to do our own thing. And, of course, all that stuff at the festivals um, came to play. But if you're good enough and you get the runs on the board by building your own headline tickets, like Tash is an $89 to $120 ticket or something, Ziggy's numbers are, are getting up there. If you build your own ticket, get runs on the board yourself, you almost can't become undeniable to those festivals, um, in my opinion, because you're a value-add. And as long as you don't overplay the market, and a lot of our acts have got overseas ambitions, so they're overseas a lot anyway, then if they play their festival, then they're going to be a huge value-add at whatever time slot they choose because you do the math on how many tickets, and if they sold 8,000 tickets up the road at the start of the year, well, then at eighty dollars or whatever it is, then they're a huge, they're a huge value add. So, yeah, all that stuff we thought about, but we decided just to go for it and back ourselves. And it's something that I'm, yeah, super proud of, and, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. But I just want that agency to really, you know, really realise its potential. And I think in the coming years we're going to be in a really great position. And it's got to be fun, you know. It's a bunch of, um, it's a bunch of amazing talent and. We're excited for the future. I mean, those little hurdles like that, it's, you can't think like that in terms of, you can, yeah, of course you think like that for business, but in terms of like ambition and where you want to go and how you want to get there, you just got to work as hard as you can and, and, and that kind of stuff just works itself out. Do your own tours and build your own ticket. Often when an artist is in an unhappy marriage and whether it be a record company, a management business, an agency, whatever, they, they, they leave one company and they go to another. You guys have left one company and started your own entity. 
And so that makes me think one of two things. Either you felt like you could do what the other agencies were doing better or you could do it different. So which one is it and, and can you unpack what it is that you can do better or different than the other agencies in Australia? Um, we left 123 Agency purely on the fact that we wanted to do things differently, not better. Like I can't badmouth them in any kind of way or whatsoever um, and I, wish, I sincerely wish them all the best. Um, we just wanted to do things different. That's it. It's pure and simple. We wanted to have more of that ownership and more of that con- like control. And it's just waking up in the morning and knowing that it's yours. It's your thing. And when you're in the engine room and you're working as hard as you possibly can um, for your client and vice versa, um, that was the main reason. It was just like, and, and to be honest, maybe we should have done a little bit earlier and we hung around for loyalty, you know. So looking back, yeah. Um, Maybe would have done thing, things a couple of you know done a couple of things differently, but at the same time, I'm I'm really proud of how it was handled and how uh, we kind of moved on. How do you compare agencies in Australia versus agencies overseas? Because you would have had a lot of exposure to both. Like, what do you see any differences in how international agencies operate or their influence versus how the Australians are set up? Um, yeah, I mean. Obviously, it's just significantly bigger. In every country, you've got a triple J, essentially. Like, you get your 3FM in Netherlands, you've got your Eins Live in Germany, and those stations all back festivals. So we've got that with Triple J here and Falls and Splendor and Groove in the Moon, but it's just on a significantly bigger scale. So I guess operational-wise, they obviously, there's more staffed up. Paul Boswell, who's Tones and Tash's agent and Pierce Brothers' agent in the UK, Europe, I hope he doesn't see this and hate me, but I think he's in the 70s. He's just been around forever. He's got that extra edge of age and expertise and just he knows everyone he knows how to build in different markets so um that would be the only main difference it's just it's, it's significantly bigger but in terms of how they run and how they do things i mean it's a very similar setup to us we're just again we're starting very small and not trying to take over the world we just want to nail australia new zealand and really get a, a strong foothold in asia which harry's done an incredible job of that uh, already with getting x over there so um I guess all in all, it's pretty similar, really, and and yeah, it's 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 not rocket science. You just got to have great talent, get to work early, and finish late, and um, and get to work. So Reagan, it's there's going to be a lot of younger, aspiring managers watching this, listening to this, uh, and trying to work out how you are doing what you're doing, how you got to where you are. Where did it all start for you? How did you start in the music industry? So I played in a band. Um, I met Dave, actually, my business partner. When I was 13 in New Zealand at school. We played in a band called Bonja together for well, all through school. Then we moved to Australia, did it professionally for 10 years. So that was my first kind of uh, foot in, I guess. And um, that's where we made – I could write a novel on the amount of mistakes we made. and um, But they're important mistakes because that taught – me and the lady is on what to, when to say no and when to and do all that sort of stuff. So, um, but again, yeah, and, and we played all the venues that we sent our artists in or a lot of the festivals and that sort of stuff. So I got a very real introduction on how to basically uh, have a professional career in Australia. And uh, from there, obviously we were self-managed and then from there um, got the job at 123 Agency and started looking after acts. Nairi and, and a bunch of stuff. Can I um, can I just ask business. just just on that getting your job at One Two Three Agency, your first salary in the music industry, 
How did you get that gig? Dano texted me. I was working at a photography company part-time and I just got a text one night. He had just started it and said, do you want a job? Ha ha. And I was like, nah, man, I'm good. I'm, I'm in a band. I'm, I'm busking. I'm working, whatever. And then on the Monday, I texted him. I said, yeah, I'm super keen. What do I do? And then I just went and bought a laptop and showed up at the office and away we went. It was just kind of plug in and go. And um, yeah, I loved it. I just loved it. I loved going on the other side of the fence and 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 just diving in and helping artists and and after about a year things started to kind of pick up and it just felt like like I wanted to be an agent you know and um and that 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 ambition kind of wore off pretty quick and I really felt a passion for management and uh, in 2013 Dave and I launched Lemon Tree Music and our first client was Pierce Brothers and we just threw the kitchen sink at it we we you know that sold 50,000 EPs busking and we just truly believed that it could be a global thing and Today they do really great numbers in Europe and all that sort of stuff and they're still on the roster and they're amazing boys. So I guess it's just been going from band to agent to management um, but always kind of doing the management thing and just learning along the way um, and making just a lot of mistakes. Like I'm not one of those people that says a mistake's a bad thing. Like I think it's a good thing, just don't make the same mistake twice and all that sort of stuff. It's just how you learn and... For the young managers, it's just a matter of get out there and meet people and throw you, immerse yourself in the scene and see good acts and find a mentor. I think that's incredibly important early on as well. Um, very fortunate to have uh, a mentor too and just, you know, really soak up the advice and have that attitude of you can take over the world, but you just got to be very respectful doing it and do it your way. Don't do it the way that everyone tells you to do it as well. There's a blueprint for it then you've got to take that blueprint and make it your own thing. And that's the hardest thing to do and still cut through because there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of music and you've just got to think in your mind, you've got to find the most innovative way possible and how to get from A to B without doing what everyone else is doing. And for us, it was buskers, it was going global early to get that perception that things were going better than they are overseas than back home and then the press writes about you more and give Triple J everything early because obviously they've sponsored all the festivals and they're great people and they're not the devil, you know what I mean? It's like they're made out to be this big scary thing, but they're just actually great people shining a light on an incredible uh, array of, of Australian talent. So um, I don't know, we could talk for days on this stuff, but yeah, just work as hard as you can. Clear your inbox before everyone else gets into the office so you're being proactive instead of chasing your target. I mean, if you do that an hour before everyone else gets there every day, you're already here to the game five hours a week, but over a year that's a lot of time. So um, and don't be afraid to pick up the phone and, and, and obviously don't be annoying. There's that fine line of emailing someone and then following up too much because I'm sure you get plenty of loot, but just be respectful and be a good person and, you know, just protect your reputation because that's all we've all got at the end of the day. It's funny to hear your the thread of your main advice is to fucking hustle, basically. If I was to, if I was to summarize it, it's work really hard. Um, and we've spoken about this a few times on this podcast, first with John Watson, then with Jaden, uh, you know, with their own respective episodes. And both of them work extremely hard. And you look at the most successful managers and the most successful operators, they're very, very hard workers. And to hear you echo that as well is re- really reaffirming the idea of literally getting the office an hour before everybody else clear your inbox out so you can you can be in front of it. And that is what I think separates most people from the exceptional people. Um, And I think if you are a manager or an aspiring person in the music industry during this COVID time, 
now is the time to really separate yourself. If you can work harder than everybody else when when it's really a level playing field, like we said, everyone's at home, everyone's doing the same shit. You can either be playing PlayStation or having drunk Zoom calls with your mates or you can fucking get ahead of everybody and really capitalize on the idea that now's your chance to pounce and it's not a chance to fucking grovel in the losses and the sadness. Um, I think that's super inspiring and I think it's it's really consistent with every successful person we speak to uh, on this podcast. A hundred percent and find yourself a good team because they're the ones you fall back on when times are really hard, which you will have plenty of. And they're the times that you can celebrate your wins with as well. And obviously don't get too ahead of yourself with the wins and that's something we never do. Like if we get a win, it's like, great, awesome, thank you, great work. And, you, you know, all that sort of stuff. But then you've got to always think what's next, not hey, let's have a party because this happened. It's like, this is incredible, but our long-term goal is this and we're another inch of getting there basically. And I think if you don't lose sight of that and you don't get too involved in what you're doing, because taking a step back and having like, I have Sundays off, for example, having that Sunday off to really refresh, hang out with your family and and all that sort of stuff, I think it's incredibly important because you get perspective and you start the week fresh. Um, But yeah, just there's no right or wrong and just get stuck in like just the only way to, to, to give this thing a crack is, is just to start and start tomorrow it's like stop putting stuff off i just want to unpick that don't over celebrate sentiment um and i guess by inverse don't over mourn when things go bad how as a manager i mean artist managers can can effectively be counselors 80 percent of the time with their artists and you know without spoiling the uh i guess the story is that tones talks about how she's felt getting absolutely attacked and and insulted online by by you know if you're going to get that big that's going to happen right so as a manager how do you often talk to your artists about hey this amazing thing has happened and everyone's praising you but don't get too excited because if your emotional if your emotional mood is dependent on everyone's everyone's celebration of you, you're going to be too adversely affected when everybody's criticizing you. Um, so if, you're, if your whole mood is hinged on other people's responses, then you're not in control of your own mood and your own perception of your own worth. How do you manage that? How is that? How, how do you talk to your artists and, and, work and navigate through all of the fact that they're always going to be under the public spotlight massively criticized or massively praised and there's very little in between it's it's incredibly difficult to be to be completely honest um because as an artist themselves you get probably 10 20 i don't know hundreds of no's and then you get that one little yes and that one little yes that one door opens and it could mean it could lead to that thing and then it could lead to one interview that or review and then the review goes bad so you're back to your hundred no's so our thing's always been when you get that one yes, make that yes count. And in terms of um, talking to artists and stuff, I mean, yeah, you've just got to tell them that you're there for them, you know, you care about them, that you love them, and you've got to be there with them through the thick and the thin. Like, it's there's just there's no other way around it, and you can't kind of school anything else other than that except for the fact that, yeah, it's an incredibly tough gig. I used to say, like, 100 million people love you too, 100 million people hate them, you know. It's like... It's one of those horrible, horrible things with the internet age and people sitting in dark rooms and typing horrible shit about people and it makes my blood boil. And there's been so many comments with our artists online that I've seen and I'm just, I just want to reply and I just, but that's just feeding what they want, they're trolls. And I think now more than ever, 
I'm hoping that our artists um, see that they see out the bullshit. And when you play a festival and there's twenty thousand people singing your words back, or when you write a song and you get X amount of streams, or whatever it may be, I hope there's more joys than there are the cons. I guess and um, mental health's a huge thing, and it's 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 massive, and it's something that um, I, I don't really know the answer to that question, except for just to let them know that you're sincerely there for them, and sometimes you've got to, you know, clear the deck and just do whatever you can to help. I guess it's um, going back to earlier, like management's not just set this up and do that and do this. It's like you're in, you're like essentially a family member. It's like a marriage, and um, it's twenty four seven and all encompassing, and that's one of the brutal things that comes with it. And you've just got to put things into context and outweigh that, you know, the cover of Rolling Stone is one of the most prestigious things. And, I mean, you know, people used to read that thing growing up and if someone online comments one bad thing, I don't know. I just think there's a pros and cons list for everything and you've just got to do all you can to be there for them, I guess, is the, the long of it. Regan, thank you so much for your time today. Incredibly insightful. I understand some of the questions weren't easy to answer. Um, you did exceptionally well. We end every podcast at Fear at the Top the same way by asking whoever's on, what is the biggest mistake they've made and what can we learn from it? Jeez. I thought about this on the weekend of what I'd say. <laughs> um, and there were just that many mistakes. I, To be honest, I couldn't think of the best one. But um, probably looking back um, is knowing when to stop before you burn out. And my mistake was I went too hard for too long and burnt out. So learn how to delegate early. It's not, don't, don't look at it like a negative or that you're not doing your job good enough uh, to delegate to someone else. Just really embrace that and um, look after your mental health. Look after, you know, you, you remember that you're a human being as well and managers often get thrown in the pot and it can be pretty hectic, but at the same time, you've just got to just got to remember to take a step back and get help. You know, I, I mean, I had to see a psychologist and, and take all these supplements and do all this stuff to, because all my adrenals and stuff were completely shot. I was burnt out and you only know if you're burnt out until you physically get there because you think, oh no, I'm fine, I'm fine or whatever. Um, so the main message is my biggest mistake was not knowing when to ask for help and not knowing when to, um, put my hand up and go, you know what, this is too much and I'm working too much and I need I need a delegate and I need to help. So if you can identify that before you do crash and burn, then I think that's an incredibly important thing. Um, and just to look after yourself, remember that you're a human being as well and you know you got a heartbeat and you've got a family, you've got friends and if you can if you can navigate through all this stuff with your reputation in good order and um, you know, smile at the end of it and smile and wave and all that sort of stuff, then then, then you're doing well. But, yeah, don't wait until it's too late. Yeah, identify those signs early and um, just look after yourself, I guess. Regan, thank you so much for your time. The Australian music industry as a whole has hugely benefited from the fact that you have taken management on with both hands. Uh, we are grateful as fans and as colleagues. Thank you so much, mate. We wish you all the best and all the success. Thank you very much for having me, Luke. Really appreciate it, mate.